Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, we are going to be examining Frank Darabont's 2007 adaptation of the short story contained within uh, the publication Skeleton Crew, that short story adaptation, of course, being The Mist. So I wanted to start off with a quote from one of the characters uh, in the movie that I think just sums up the entire movie. Uh, I'd rather die out there trying than in here waiting. Uh, that's pretty much just the odds that the characters have to overcome in this movie. Um, so those of you who haven't seen this movie, I, I think that you should go out and, and do it. It's, it's done very, very well. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Frank Darabont is the guy that popularized The Walking Dead. Um, you know, I mean, chances are, if you're listening to the podcast, you know that and you know what The Walking Dead is. But by chance, if you don't know what The Walking Dead is, um, it's it's a smash hit. Smash hit. Sorry, this is a, supposed to be an explicit free um, podcast on iTunes. But it's a smash hit. Uh, AMC show uh, about zombies and survivors in a post-apocalyptic world. And of course, Frank Darabont uh, is no stranger to, uh, to Stephen King, having uh, directed The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. This is something that he wanted to do. Uh, he kind of He's wanted to do just a straight-up Stephen King, traditional, I guess what we would call Stephen King story. Um, and I loved it. I think that he did an incredible job with it. And so I was really excited to, uh, to pop it in and watch it. And just so you know, I, I was watching the black and white version of this movie. Uh, so if you're not aware, if you go and you get either the, the DVD or the Blu-ray, it should come with um, a special disc or a special option to watch a black and white version of the movie, um, which is a, as Frank Darabont intended it to be, because as he states, there's something about Stephen King's story that's a throwback. The story itself is inspired by the movies of Stephen King's youth, you know, those black-and-white uh, creature features. Um, and Darabont makes a really good argument here because uh, he says for the argument that it doesn't look real, that's exactly why Frank Darabont pushed for the black-and-white version because it creates for a view of the world that doesn't exist in reality. It's such a love letter to the experience of movies. And so with that kind of explanation, it's awesome. You have to watch that version, and it looks beautiful in black and white. I've only seen the, um, the, the just the regular uh, colored version um, once, maybe twice. I saw it in the theater, um, and ever since then, anytime I've, I've seen the movie, I've only watched it in black and white. But it just looks so good, you know, with the introduction over... You know, Frank Darabont's introduction, uh, the Dimension logo fills the screen with a rumbling of thunder, you know, and a smattering of rain before cutting to Thomas Jane, painting a picture that holds no association for the casual theater goer, but caused every hardcore Stephen King fan to jump out of their seats. It's a movie poster for a non-existent gunslinger movie, showcasing what looks like Clint Eastwood as Roland, The Tower and a Rose. It's a beautiful and fun Easter egg that makes every King fan just a little giddy that we're getting a movie by someone who loves King as much as we do. He'll later have Mrs. Carmody utter uh, the line, My life for you, by the way, which is the trash can man's famous phrase uttered in reverence of Randall Flagg. So I just love these little Easter eggs. And that poster, by the way, um, is, is hanging uh, on my wall. It was a gift by author uh, Joe Sherry. So thank you, Joe. Again. 
Um, the picture, by the way, uh, in, in this movie, it gets destroyed. <laughs> so as soon as that happens, I just think uh, that the tower has fallen. Um, and Thomas Jane, when talking to his wife, uh, makes a quick commentary on modern movie posters, uh, you know, saying, you know, that the, the studio probably will just do a, a bad Photoshop version of a bunch of floating heads, which is what happens all the time. So anyone that follows movies or follows movie posters uh, will know that that is a, it's a nice little dig at, at uh, modern movies right now. Um, but anyway, kind of going back, before before that happens, the, the title comes up as the family is uh, framed in the picture window overlooking as they look out onto the lake with the, the, the storm rolling across the water. And the title is just very simple. It's just two words. They just appear on the screen over our family. You know, like I said, who watches the lightning storm play out over the lake. And as I stated in other movie reviews, modern day titles are just so CGI heavy. You know, they're events unto themselves. And it's exhausting. And I love moments like this. When a title is just there for a second, it's just there so the audience knows what we're watching and it's gone. It's understated. It's just what it needs to be. And again, you know, just watching this movie, the black and white is just a great choice. The shadows and the blacks are so deep, so rich. It feels like another time, and it makes this movie a special event. The movie's gorgeous, gorgeous. I mean, just look at the cinematography of the day after the storm, you know, of, uh, of Billy, um, you know, walking across, uh, you know, the lawn, uh, you know, framed against the, uh, the giant tree that's fallen. You know, or, or just even the, the way that the mist rolls in over the lake. It just looks primordial. It just it looks beautiful in black and white. Um, when we meet Andre Brower, the movie just totally comes alive. Uh, you know, he's screaming, he's swearing at his chainsaw. He does so much with this character. He plays up every unlikable aspect of this character. He's smug, he's bristly, he's irritable. And ultimately, they drive to the grocery store, and they watch the army trucks go racing by. You know, it's it's ominous. And Darabont makes the wise decision to have the characters discuss the Arrowhead project rather jokingly. You know, especially when it comes to the rumors that fly out of Mrs. Carmody's store. Thomas Jane specifically plays David as uh, really down-to-earth. Um, so much, in fact, that his dialogue feels at times, especially in this scene, uh, stilted. It's not a knock against his acting. Uh, in fact, I'm going to consider it a point in, in Thomas Jane's column, but... I really can see how some people could miss the acting part and criticize it. I just see it as a guy acting kind of stiff, which is acting. And I, it, and I think that's perfect for a Stephen King character. Um, Darabon is a master here, just cranking up the tension. It's great. The army, trucks, the army trucks race by. The phone's not working. We enter the grocery store. You know, we get to meet the locals, our employees, Mrs. Carmody. And just meeting everyone through the perspective of David is a throwback to the type of storytelling that Darabont had re referenced earlier. It feels like something out of an It's a Wonderful Life. And again, that's completely complimentary. And then while everyone waits in line, we get small talk among the locals. We get the army boys who enter the store with the military police right behind. You know, there, there's enough intrigue to uh, keep us on the edge of our seats. And then outside, the police and fire trucks go screaming down the road. The tension that I referenced increases. And then, and then, the siren. Fans of the video game Silent Hill will recognize what the siren means when it comes to fog. 
It's a dreadful sound. I got goosebumps right now just thinking about it. It's horrifying. It's ominous. It's the voice of an insect god pronouncing the coming of the mist. Seconds later, Jeffrey DeMunn comes running towards the grocery store. With the character of Sally, who clasps her hands over her mouth, her utterance of, Oh God, is the recognition that the characters have been holding back the feeling of deep unease. That perhaps this was more than just a storm, even if they can't explain why. Jeffrey DeMunn's introduction speaks to the wrongness of the situation. What's he running from? Why is he bloody? And while there's no immediate connection between his appearance and the sounding siren, the two events are inextricably linked. It's clear that something bad has happened, and something bad is about to happen. Jeffrey DeMunn, by the way, is a walking Stephen Kingism, uh, an actor that has appeared in multiple Stephen King movies, including The Shawshank Redemption, The Mist, The Green Mile, and Storm of the Century. Aside from Mrs. DeMunn, we also have Francis Sternhagen, who has appeared here in The Golden Years and Misery, and William Sadler, who appeared in The Green Mile and The Shawshank Redemption. But going back, William DeMunn uh, screams, there's something, I'm sorry, Jeffrey DeMunn screams, there's something in the mist. The siren sounds. The mist rolls in as people scatter like ants over the parking lot. The fog fills the camera, and then screams emerge from the mist. We're trapped while milky white fog presses against the glass. The earthquake hits, and at this point, we're only 14 minutes in. Frank Darabont is not at all wasting any time. He knows that he has to get right to uh, the meat of the story. In the aftermath of the earthquake, chaos begins to take hold over our survivors, trying to make sense of what's happening, talking over each other, almost everyone talking but not to each other. D um, and then Dale warns everyone not to go into the mist, and Carol says she has to get back to Sophia, or rather, Jeffrey DeMunn warns everyone not to go into the mist, and Melissa McBride explains that she has to get back to her kids. Um... It's a bad joke uh, that fans of The Walking Dead might might catch. Uh, McBride really, though, does a great job at selling her desperation, tears in her eyes, uh, her fright. Um, but good God, does Darabont go a little overboard by including the Stephen King line, won't anybody see a lady home? It's reasons like this that I believe that Stephen King dialogue doesn't really work very well outside of the printed page. On paper, in the books, the words sound like great stylized approximations of conversation, but read aloud in another medium, they really sound hokey. And this seems way too on the nose. The guilty looks from the survivors is enough. You know, we can feel their shame at not helping her reunite with her children. Her vocalizations are unneeded, um, and to me, they undermine the, the, the effect of the scene. Though, you know, I will say Darabont does make the point at providing an exchange between she and Thomas Jane, who states, I have my own kid to worry about. The act is understandable, but out of context, can be interpreted as selfish, and when she says, I hope you all burn in hell, it's less of an exclamation of frustration and more of a curse on the people that won't help her when she needs it the most. It's a curse that ultimately comes true. And of course, I'm referencing the much-debated end of the movie, which I'm going to get to later. McBride casts one accusatory last glance at those she leaves behind and heads into the unknown, armed only by her love of her children. And then comes the first big moment in the movie, with the backroom generator reveal of the tentacle and the acknowledgement that there are things in the mist. First, when Tom Jane shuts off the generator, he stumbles around the dark and hears something. At worst... Something big pressing against the door. 
Now, Darabont here makes the wise decision to show us exactly why Myron and Jim wind up being so hard-headed about opening the door. When Tom Jane says, you guys don't seem to understand or are trying real hard not to, are you guys being willfully dense? He unwillingly encourages them to open the door simply to spite his smug attitude. Yeah, David's coming from the right place, but completely manhandles how to go about it. If I was back there, I'd throw open that door. He really does come across as condescending. And in contrast, Jim and Myron come across pretty reasonable at first. Their reference to Hollywood is not the primary focus of their argument. And the truth is when Jim very reasonably states that he doesn't appreciate being talked down to, which he was, by someone who could afford to go to college, I get it. The scene then becomes a pissing match. One that began... Um, when David Drayton insulted their intelligence. Ollie, though, through dialogue, provides what King wrote in the passing description about them needing to do this because it's something they can do and in doing so makes them feel safe. But to me, that's not why they're doing what they're doing. That might be a part of it, but to me, it's all because David insulted them for really no reason whatsoever. And I'm going to talk a little bit about David um, some more in a bit, but I want to get to the good stuff here. The first tentacle comes out of the mist. It grabs Norm's leg. The scene is intense. It's slow. Norm's death takes time as more and more tentacles slide under the door. It's filmed well, okay? But it presents a major issue I have with this movie, and that's the CGI. The CGI doesn't look bad in black and white, but it doesn't look great. For a story inspired by the creature features of the 1950s, the inclusion to digitalize the creatures is a poor choice in my estimation. I mean, think about how much better the movie would have looked if, you know, rubber slime-drenched tentacles wrapped around the actors and the actors had to play off something physical and tangible. Oh, um... You know, but uh, soon after, getting back to the, the narrative here, Norton feels that he's being made fun of and Darabont films the scene well. From Norton's perspective, I completely understand why he'd think that. Norton lets loose on the townies, and being the lawyer that he is, his argument makes sense. It's a raw scene, quiet in its anger, and it's all because of the brilliance of Andre Brower, with his unblinking, judging eyes. His whole body just seethes with anger. And it's little touches like how he begins to say F you, barely gets the F out before the anger within him completely takes over. He's so angry he can't even form words at this point. Or how he lets David know he's glad the tree smashed the boathouse. It's a moment like this that feels raw and messy like real life, and just keeps the story from being more than just something about tentacles. <laughs> I mean, as funny as it sounds, um... It's about the people who have to survive the tentacles. And again, as I mentioned before, David shows that he just doesn't know how to handle the situation. He physically grabs Norton and threatens to drag him into the back room. Of course, Norton does not respond well to this. This is the third time David has screwed up a situation. His first is his response to Melissa McBride. The second is talking down to the other townsfolk. And now there's this. It's a great touch to make him so flawed. He's our point-of-view character, but he's not a hero. He's not a leader. He doesn't know how to work with others. He's bullheaded. He's irritable. He's condescending. He can't command. With that said, you know, I mean, there is something likable about him. He's not, he's not a monster. He's not particularly charming, but Tom Jane infuses him with enough likability to mask the other qualities that are out there but hidden. Now, I don't recall noticing the negative qualities the first time around. 
Like I said, I, I think that it's a great touch. It gives credence to the other characters, the Jims, the Myrons, the Nortons, and gives everyone more texture all around to their characters. And speaking of characters, uh, we've got Mrs. Carmody. So let's let's talk about Mrs. Carmody for a second, okay? You know, Darabont teases her in the store, uh, giving us glimpses of her talking about death in the midst and, and, and judgment. Because we know how to watch a movie, we understand that she's going to become a problem. You know, if she wasn't, then Norton and David wouldn't have mentioned her in the car. Now, with that said, Marcia Gay Harden's performance is electric. She does a great job with this role, and from watching it, it's clear she would have made for a great Margaret White as well. Darabont knows that she can handle the insanity and lets his camera linger on her. Just look at the bathroom scene. It's an extended take of her talking to God, the tears running down her face. Giving her this moment is a great example to put Marcia Gay Harden's skills on display, while also giving her character a moment to actually be a character and not just a one-note villain. She's crazy, though. That's clear. That's one thing that is abundantly clear her. You know, her, her moment with Lori Holden is a prime example of that. Whether it be her venomous attack on Lori, uh, her Old Testament spewing rhetoric, or how awestruck she is when she sees the bugs on the window, knowing that she's right, and she speaks about God's judgment without missing a breath, says, Wow, look at those stingers. Later, we have our three camps at war with each other. Norton on one side, David on the other, and Carmody being the third. They're all snapping at each other, creating the chaos of the scene. As Carmody goes full preacher, reading from the Bible, tensions rise. Jim, drunk, threatens her. People watch. People tell her to be quiet. She continues. She states that the God of the Israelites, the vengeful God, demands blood. And with this, we know what type of crazy we're dealing with. Her rant is put into, into place with um, a, a swift slap from Amanda. But that does not stop the tension that's built because Jim isn't happy with the fact that she can hit her, but he can't. Eventually, Norton convinces a crew to head into the mist. For any complaint I have about the CGI tentacles, I have no complaint about how the mist is filmed. It's downright eerie with how easily the actors disappear into it. The scene is so well done, with the line of ropes slowly pulling through the doorway like the fishing line from Jaws. Then it starts flying, pulling a group of men. And it's an incredible touch. The rope angles up, suggesting something large has grabbed them. Um, this was not in the short story that, I mean, the, 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 um, the rope scene is, but not the, the rope going up as something large has, has grabbed them. That, oh, it's so unsettling. Um, and then David pulling the rope back, which, because, which begins to come back bloody, um, and still just pulling it and pulling it. Such an effective touch. Included in this movie that wasn't in the story is a, a very small, um, and it's not dragged out, uh, relationship between Sally, the checkout girl, and Private Jessup. Um, it's a nice moment. It doesn't drag. It's not cringeworthy. The two don't come across as horny teenagers. They just have a simple, tender moment that feels real. It goes a long way in establishing their characters, um... Not that much happens with the characters, and really it's just Darabont fattening them up for the ultimate slaughter, but it makes the slaughter that much more. Um, and Sally is soon, like right after, dispatched by one of the flying insects during the night scene, which is so well done. From the quiet examination of the bugs on the window to the terror of the pterodactyl-looking winged creature smashing through the grocery store, it's a scene of pure chaos. I mean, Sally's death is horrible. 
to watch. The bucket of gasoline's overturned. Everything goes up in fire. The flamed bat creature flying through the aisles. In black and white, the winged monsters look incredible. Like I said, I've only seen the colored version once, maybe twice. I don't remember how they look, but in black and white, they look lethal. And I can't tell if they're CGI, you know, so it's really, really good job on the special effects part. Also in this scene, we get a good glimpse of the bugs ugh, with their terrifyingly, strangely humanoid faces. It's an aspect that was not in the book, and I'm really glad that Frank Darabont included it. It makes these creatures look even more horrific than they are. Um, also in this movie that uh, was not included in the book is the inclusion of the burned man begging to be put out of his misery. This causes David's group to head to the pharmacy. So not only does it give the characters motivation, but it also shows the reality of the horrors um, and difficulties uh, of this new world and the chaos that it brings. Then we get to see the group begin to decide their next step. Amanda refuses to believe that Mrs. Carmody will pose more of a threat than she already does, but the others don't agree with her. And then Ollie drops a bomb on them and walks away. As a species, we're fundamentally insane, he says. Put more than two of us in a room, we pick sides and start dreaming up ways to kill each other. Why do you think we invented politics and organized religion? Boom. The next scene in the pharmacy does wonders in showing the hopelessness to survive in this new mist-shrouded world. Dangers come in all shapes and sizes, and all of them, every single aspect of this, is life-threatening to humans. While the world is now shrouded in mist, one thing is clear. It's not a world capable of sustaining human life anymore. As they wander throughout the pharmacy, Jeffrey DeMunn spots a, a web-covered column, and right after we hear a skittering off-camera. Then the camera pans up to see a cocooned human, and William Sadler's reaction to the realization that there are spiders is exactly, exactly how I would, I would react. The overwhelming exhaustion of terror is dead on. Tentacles I could do. I could handle tentacles, sure. But spiders, no. No thanks. My brain would check out so quickly, um, I would be a walking zombie extra in The Walking Dead. I have two fears in life no actually one fear in life um and that is walking down the street and all of a sudden getting caught up in a in a giant web um and being eaten by a man-eating spider um or flying over the amazon for whatever reason my plane goes down and in the bowels of the amazon again i get caught up in a giant web uh from a man-eating spider are the chances um very likely that this will happen, no, but it's it might not be a, uh, a probability, but it is a possibility. So anytime there is a man-eating spider on screen, um, it, it just it gets me. I, so uh, uh, William Sadler's reaction here is, is pretty much exactly how I would react, um, except he's well more put together than I would react. Um, Darabont here includes a scene that wasn't in the novel, uh, with the military policemen uh, giving birth to little spiders. It's gross. It's it's horrific. It's gruesome. Uh, and just when we think that we can't handle the threats, a giant spider um, emerges from the mist uh, in the doorway. And so it's just spider-tastic. There are spiders everywhere in all shapes and, spider in, in all shapes and sizes. And every single spider has a humanoid face. It's so disturbing and so creepy, so well done. Um, the military policeman that I referenced, by the way, uh, he apologizes and he claims that it was all their fault. You know, this causes our heroes to seek out answers, which is for the benefit of the viewers who want clear-cut explanations here. 
Just as in the book, two of our soldiers have committed suicide, which leaves the third to provide answers. And this allows for a scene um, in which he can then be offered up as a sacrifice to the growing cult. Darabont knows that the true horrors in this story are the humans, so he knows that he has to make the sacrifice count. And it's as brutal as any spider or tentacled um, creature. The scene builds to the point in which the, uh, the soldier is unexpectedly stabbed, then purposefully stabbed again and again. And Darabont lingers on the scene. He doesn't cut away. The crowd screams first in terror, then in exultation. The soldier screams in agony. They carry him to the door, and a move that has to be purposeful, he braces himself against the door in a futile attempt to be forced into the mist. This, of course, echoes the death of Norm, who did the same thing as he was pulled into the mist. With this mirroring, Darabon is reinforcing what I said earlier, that the humans are just as awful, just as monstrous as the creatures themselves. The lieutenant places his hand on the door and begs as a hulking monstrosity emerges from the fog an alien god arriving for its sacrifice. Now this only emboldens Carmody, who now claims to be God's vessel. She swills milk like a boss and struts around the grocery store with a dangerous congregation to back her. The scene plays out with much more dangerous menace than I remember it did in the book. The crowd just seems larger to me, more bloodthirsty. And Darabot captures the chaos, the bloodthirst. And suddenly, the milk bottle shatters. Carmody drops. Ollie. Just as in the book, the most heroic character is Ollie. He stands up to others when the time calls for it. He speaks up for rationality. He knows how to shoot the gun. He uses it even though he doesn't want to. He puts an end to Carmody's blood reign. Carmody, meanwhile, lies in a Christ-like pose in a pool of her own blood. But Ollie's heroism doesn't grant him any good. Because in the mist-drenched world... Um, the gods of Carmody's wrath come down upon him, tearing him in half and dropping his body parts like they were crumbs. The crew scatters. Lost to the fog, there's no hope for those that don't make it to the car. Now in the car, our heroes flee. And it's here that we get the sense that the world is completely overrun with fog and monsters. It's imperative for Darabont to establish this because of how he chooses to end the movie. Now, last week, I talked about how I was going to discuss the ending in this review, so here we go. Um, in the book, David is our narrator, and it's revealed that the survivors have lived, and despite all odds, are pressing on until they find a place without the mist. But here, in this movie, the ending is different. After driving, discovering that the world is overrun with corpses, with mist, with spider webs, with tentacled and clawed beasts, behemoth whose back scrape the sky, David just loses hope. Hope here is represented by the amount of fuel in the Jeep. When the movie came out, a friend of mine pointed out the suddenness of David's actions and that he said it was too soon for him to just kill everyone in the car. Um, you know, I mean, because basically what happens is the car stops, he pulls out his gun, he shoots everyone. But to me, it, it's purposeful and it's symbolic that the action comes about as soon as the Jeep runs out of gas. Hope is like fuel. Without it, the car won't start. There's no chance of going forward. There isn't a little bit of gas. There's no gas. When you're drained of hope, there's no hope. There's no little hope. There's nothing. There's only despair. And despair is just the absence of hope. Oof. It's bleak, man. It's bleak. It's a dark ending. A man murders his kid. You know, we know that he's trying to save him from a painful death, but it's still a father murdering his son. It's even worse knowing that in the seconds after the murders, 
The army comes to save the day. And with the army, we see Melissa McBride, who'd left the store with a curse to them all. Her actions had been in the service of others. She was filled with hope that she'd be okay, hope that her children would be okay. David, on the other hand, surrendered his hope. And as a result, he's damned to an existence of living torment. Um, by the way, as I was watching this, it was, it was Christmas Eve. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Yikes. Ugh. Um, so now has come the time to, uh, break down, uh, the, the book versus movie in a comparison. So first I am going to, um, examine, uh, David. I'll just start with David. Who's better, uh, the book David or the movie David? I'm going to go with the book. Um, because as much as I like Tom Jane, as much as I had, um, uh, oh, I just realized that I could have made a, with the, the death of his kid, I could have made an Arrested Development, I just want my kids back joke, <laughs> which would be an awful, awful taste. Um, but I, I think that Tom Jane does a good job, but I just, unless the character does something truly magnificent on screen I, I i tend to go with the the main characters from the book um because there is something stilted in his delivery and his performance which like i said i think is purposeful um but for whatever reason i just go with the book uh norton uh, i'm gonna go with andre brower because he's awesome <laughs> completely uh in the movie he's just great i mean i i it makes me wish that Darabont had made the decision to beef up his character more. Um, and I think that the movie loses something when, when he goes out into the mist because he's just electric every time he's, he's on the, um, on the screen. Uh, and then we have Amanda, uh, who's better in the book or movie. Uh, well, it's not so much. I'm going to go with the movie on this. Um, it's just that her involvement in, in a scene from the book was cut out smartly by Frank Darabont, and that's a sex scene. And as you know, that I came down on it last week in the Stephen King cast review of the short story, or the novella, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, Darabont just did not want to include a sex scene because uh, it, it just would have come across as gratuitous and out of place uh, and just adulterous. Uh, it, it just, it really just, I don't understand why King did it. Um, and I'm glad that Frank Darabont made the decision not to do it. So. Um, because it involves the Amanda character, I'm going to give a point um, to to uh, to Amanda in the movie. Um, and we have Mrs. Carmody. As much as Mar you know what? No, I was going to give an argument that you know in in the book uh, she's crazier. Um, but you know what? I, I think that Marcia Gay Harden does a really really good job from being crazy. <laughs> to just being smug at times, but like a cool kind of smug. And she makes these jokes. Um, and, and just the, the way that she plays her, it isn't just a one note crazy. It's a, uh, she gives her texture, you know, the way she insults people and she really gets caught up in, you know, and, and compare her to the way, um, uh, what's her face? Uh, well, I don't, I'm drawing a blank for some reason. Uh, and I'm stalling because I, I think that's going to, Julianne Moore, got it. Got it. I knew it was going to come to me. Uh, you know, contrast this to the way that Julianne Moore most recently played Margaret White in in the Carrie remake, and it was very understated and very quiet, um, but it was very just just unrelenting, right? Kind of one tone. Uh, this is more in line of just the the, the crazy 
uh, Piper Laurie-ish way of playing th this particular type of character. And Piper Laurie famously acted as though she was in a comedy. And in some ways, you know, Marsha Gay Harden kind of does the same. So Marsha Gay Harden uh, gets, a, gets a point there. Um, and then uh, really what it comes down to is, is the ending. What's better, the book ending of hope or the movie ending of despair? And um, I, I really like what uh, the bold choice that Frank Darabont made with the ending. So guys... I'm coming down in favor here of Frank Darabont. I love the book. I love it. I love it. Um, and at times, though, I think the movie's kind of hokey with the dialogue. I'm going to go with the movie. Go figure. You know, going into this, I thought I was going to be total pro book. But you know what? I'm going to give, you know, the, 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 the title to the movie here. So, you know, when you're talking to your friends, you can let them know that the host of the Stephen King cast came down in favor of the movie. So... That's all I got for this week, guys. Um, but I'm not necessarily done with Skeleton Crew yet. Uh, because next week, uh, I am going to be reviewing uh, the, a movie, a very, very recent movie. Actually, while, while keeping in theme of The Walking Dead, um, the movie stars Chandler Riggs, um, who plays Coral in The Walking Dead um, as the, the, the main character in an adaptation of the Skeleton Crew short story, Grandma. The movie is Mercy and is found on Netflix Instant Streaming. So I'll be watching that um, and reviewing it, which will be available uh, next week on the Stephen King cast. So I didn't expect to do it, but I'm going to go there, um, get it done before moving on to the uh, the next story in chronological order publication. So everyone, if you have not done so, feel free to like me on uh, Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, and if you have time, uh, you, know, you know, write into StephenKingCast at yahoo.com to you know discuss you know what Stephen King means to you what what you like better the the, the movie or the novella of the mist uh, what your favorite stories are just just share your thoughts because I want to be able to share them to everyone out there and if you have not done so feel free to um, you know write a review uh, on, on iTunes and subscribe to iTunes because that that will bump up uh, uh, the the, uh, the podcast in the, the iTunes listings and if not just feel free to, to listen to what I have to say week to week. And everyone, thank you for listening, and I will see you here uh, next week, same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast.